Hi, this is the Halsey Mark Show, and today I'm talking to... Timothy Renner. And could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm, a, uh, I'm an artist and an author and uh, a musician. Um, here lately, uh, I guess uh, I'm, I'm best known for uh, my books on the paranormal and uh, Bigfoot specifically. And what made you get into Bigfoot as a subject? I call it the, the kind of golden age of, of Bigfoot in America. The Patterson-Gimlin film had just come out, the very, the very famous uh, film shot in uh, Bluff Creek, California. Um, and In Search Of was a TV show here and it was hosted by Leonard Nimoy. I'm not sure if it was uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, but uh, we had it here and that, that covered topics like Bigfoot and, and so forth. And uh, some movies started coming out. In particular, there was one called The Legend of Boggy Creek, which uh, really kind of stuck with me as a child. Um, that was, it was a film, but it was based on people's true experiences. So um, that kind of got me very interested as a child um, through the 70s. I, there wasn't a ton of books that I could find just as a kid. I, it was only what was in the library. I think there was one book in our school library that I got out almost constantly on Bigfoot. I read everything I could. And then I kind of fell out of it. When I was a teenager, I got interested in music and girls and the other things that teenagers get interested in. And uh, kind of fell out of it. But uh, as an adult, I came back around. I started following it a little bit. Um, and then uh, when I wrote my first book, I found so many local Bigfoot sightings, uh, many more than I thought I ever would. And uh, because of that, I kind of jumped in with both feet and really, really got interested in the, in the uh, topic again. Have you done any and um, like gone out into the woods and uh, done any like hearing them or seeing any footprints or? I found uh, what I call a maybe footprint. The, the odd thing about uh, these creatures is there's a lot of unknowns that stands us around the mystery um i'm sure you know people know that most of the pictures that come up are blurry or inconclusive it's the same thing with footprints most of the footprints now there's some great footprints there are some great casts out there that, that have dermal ridges and and other features that indicate very much that a real creature left these footprints but the vast majority of footprints that people find are inconclusive and uh, the vast majority of evidence that people find is inconclusive and that's just one of the strange things that surrounds this mystery but um, yeah I, I, I go out in the woods I, I uh, have two or three research areas that I visit regularly and uh, I also take calls from people um, I guess I'm kind of the, the guy for Bigfoot in South Central Pennsylvania so I get a lot of witness reports and so forth and, and I do a lot of uh, on-site investigations as you know, Bigfoot isn't just in uh, America. We have a um, UK version of Bigfoot. Have you? And in Europe, there's meant to be Bigfoot sightings as well. Yeah, I'm, I, and I'm very, very interested in that. Um, it's a it's a very interesting phenomenon, and it's very similar, I think, to. Um, so there's areas here in uh, South Central Pennsylvania. I just wrote an article for, uh, there's a book called Woodnox. It's, uh, it's called uh, the Journal of Bigfoot Research. They're on volume three now. And I have an article in volume three that 
talks about just basically an eight square mile area of York County, Pennsylvania, where I live. And the kind of incredible number of Bigfoot sightings that have occurred in this in this eight square mile area. And if you look at the surrounding area, it, it's impossible for a breeding population of these creatures to live in that, at least if they, they act like other animals that we know about. So the UK Bigfoot, uh, it reminds me of that in many ways. It, you know, it doesn't seem like there'd be an area enough for a breeding population, but uh, we have that here as well. We have areas, like I said, where there's uh, probably not not enough room for a breeding population. So you know, it leads to question: Are they are they moving in and out of the area, or do they act like other creatures, or unlike other creatures that we know of? I should say. Well. I, I I've talked to, to I've done uh, I talked a lot to the lady that does behind the, does a lot of the uh, witness reports for the British Bigfoot called Deborah Hatswell. So if you look her up, she can give you a bit more information on that. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm, I just recently got added to a, a group for uh, Irish Bigfoot as well, which you know I'm very very interested in this phenomenon and. Uh, I, I believe people are seeing these creatures all over. I don't know how that works necessarily. I don't have a lot of answers, um, but I love the mystery. I also heard that you do paranormal as well. Is that because you've had a paranormal experience yourself? Well, uh, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I guess it's a, it's a chicken and an egg. I don't know if I was always interested in it and happened to have a paranormal experience or if uh, I had a paranormal experience at a young age and um, that kind of fueled my, my lifelong interest in it. But I did have an incident when I was very young um, where my mother woke me up. I was, I want to say, between 8 and 10 years old. I don't remember the, my exact age. But she woke me up, I was asleep, and she said, do you want to see a UFO? And what kid wouldn't? I lived on a farm in rural Maryland at the time. And she took me and one of my brothers and my sister out into the driveway, and we watched this UFO over top of the trees for, it was just kind of hovering there. And we watched it for, I want to say, it seemed like maybe half an hour or something, and then everyone else got bored, and they went inside. And I said, well, I want to I stay and watch it. So I stayed out, and... I have some missing time. I, the next thing I remember is watching the same UFO from inside the house uh, out of the window. So I don't remember how I got into the house. And uh, so I don't know. That's a very early memory. I don't know if that kicked off my interest in the paranormal or if I was you know, already interested in it. And, uh, and that just kind of happened. And then I've had a, a few other events throughout my life, I, I believe. Uh, it's, it's not easy to talk about, but I, I've had... Uh, the sort of typical abduction experience, uh, I have to note that I don't think they were aliens and I don't think I left my bed. I think it's something something archetypal and uh, very weird and, and something that is not quite, uh, it doesn't act like other things in our reality do. Um, I believe it really happened, but it's very difficult to explain. It, it's... Uh, I, I never left my bed physically, but I was—I uh, I have had interaction with with uh, these what people would call greys. I mean, I, I myself believe I I have had a um, paranormal experience when I was in a coma, 
And I also believe whilst I was in the coma, I was either in the real world or the other world as well. That's what I, 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 I don't mind talking about when I was in a coma because, as I say, I was I um, went in a coma, I had a blood sugar of 124, my wife was told I was going to die, and whilst I was in a coma I heard a woman's voice I'd not heard before or since telling me to wake up, and I've had the mo- a most un- overwhelming feeling I've ever, ever had to wake up. Now, I do accept that your brain can release chemicals that make you f- feel this way. I know that is a fact. But I honestly do believe it was a guardian angel or a spirit guide. And that's my personal belief, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it would be difficult to convince anyone else, but uh, but you know, you know, and, and that's what... Uh... That's the hard part in, in trying to explain this stuff. Just out of curiosity, did you wake up when the voice told you to wake up? Yes. So uh, that's uh, very, very interesting. So you came out of the coma when, when the voice, you know, basically yeah, said, wake yeah. up. Yeah, I, I saw that. Where am I? You know. Wow. And honestly, yeah. anybody who tells you you can hear people talking to you when you're in a coma, you know, when they do the films... In the films, they got people talking to you, and they say that helps stimulate you to wake you up. Well, those three weeks of my life have gone forever. I don't know what happened during that three weeks. You could tell me anything what happened during those three weeks, and I wouldn't know what the hell you're talking about. have been known isn't it that 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 is not a new there's quite a lot of people that have had that happen to them yeah i think so i think so yeah yeah and that's not particularly paranormal it was just you know a weird thing that uh, that happened do you i mean i imagine you have the same thing as over in the uk called ley lines and <laughs> in the process and, and 
of mapping ley lines. Um, I'm particularly interested in doing the county I live in, just because this is this is where I live, and uh, I'm very interested in the folklore and and uh, local sightings of cryptids and ghosts and so forth in this particular county. But uh, in general. Um, the ley lines in America, they've been mapped in, in a very, very sort of general way, but they've done nowhere near the work that, that has been done in the UK. And uh, I'm trying to get some people together to actually kind of get get down to business and map them out a little a little clearer here. So I, I've, I, when I've done my own personal research, I mean, this is only what I've done personally, Yeah, I find that when you look at, at ley lines... There's most of the majority of sightings there. There's always a UFO sighting or a cryptid sighting in that area. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, the, the, the one, um, there's a major, uh, I believe, a, like a major ley line that I've identified in this county, and it connects, all, it runs almost directly north-south. It might be, I have to check it with a, with a compass and, and uh GPS, but I, it runs basically north-south, and it cuts through several areas, um, like the, these research areas I was talking about. It, it cuts through at least three of them, one, two, three, like in a straight line. So I, I believe there is something to that. There's something that, uh, some reason that these, you know, whether it's a magnetic anomaly or, or what exactly it is, but that's uh, another reason I, I got very, very interested in ley lines. So, um, like I said, I'm hoping to find people because, you know, I, I use uh, dousing rods to check them, and I, I think I get pretty good results, but I'd like uh, people to double-check my results so it's not just, you know, my my, uh, my feelings or, or my intuition that's mapping them out. Isn't it funny how dousing rods, an ancient primitive technology, is used even in today by big companies to find water. Yes, um, my, my father was uh, what we call a water witch. Um, he used dowsing rods, but only to find, I only saw him do it once. Uh, and he, he, we had, uh, on the old farm I grew up on, it was a hand dug well. And at some point the, the county government came out and said, you can't have a hand dug well because of the particulate and so forth. So you, you need a machine dug well. So he had uh, a company come out, and I think they drilled three different wells and didn't hit water. And he finally uh, walked over and, and snapped a, a Y-shaped branch off a tree and uh, walked around until he, uh, until it pointed downwards, and he said, drill here, and they hit the water. And uh, that's the first time I'd ever, I think that's the only time I, I ever saw him uh, do any dousing. Um, but... Uh, it was it was very powerful, very interesting to see as well. And and sure enough, he was right. That's where they found the water. Cause I I mean it's like I mean obviously you got a witch history over where you are in the states, and we've got one over here. And I I recently did a thing about the last witches that were um, hung or yeah hung in in the UK. For being a witch, which is in when was in Biddeford, Devon, which is not far from where I live, and I know that you've got Salem over there, and obviously there's more other cases of witchcraft over in the states, but Salem tends to be the most famous that we've heard of. Sure. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean I, I don't know that much about. It. I know I know there was a local 
local uh, there's a local legend of a hanged witch where I grew up. And I don't think it. I think it was just a legend. I don't think there was any truth to it. Um, but as far as there'll be little in individual witchcraft cases, there's a very famous one actually from York County where I am now, which they call it the the uh, the hex trial. And uh, it was a fellow who was accused of well, two three fellows got together. They thought this guy had put a hex on him. This was in 1928, and uh, they they ended up going down and they they killed the guy. Uh, they were supposed they were told by another woman. Uh, they don't call them witches. They call them powwow doctors here. They were told by this other uh, powwow doctor that they had to get either a lock of his hair or his hex book. Um, which is not really a hex book. It's, it's called The Long Lost Friend. It's a, it's a local book of uh, folk magic and prayer and, and faith healing, really. Uh, so they visited him. They couldn't... Uh, he was a very big, very powerful man. Uh, and so they, they demanded that he give him the book, and he did not produce it. And they, a fight ensued, and they ended up uh, beating him to death with a chair and a block of wood. And they, they tried to set his house on fire and leave. Uh, but uh, it, it didn't burn, and it, his neighbor found the body. It was a very big trial. It was very famous, and York County uh, became known as Hex County, and and a lot of uh, derisive press back in the day because you know, this is in the you know, early 1900s, and the press was very much like, oh, those those dumb people in York County, they still believe in witchcraft and and so forth. So that's a very recent story as far as history goes and uh, it's it's kind of still an open wound here um, it's, it's a sensitive topic a lot of people don't like to talk about it uh, because uh, they were really shamed in the press um, it was a very hurtful thing because it was part of folk culture here and suddenly this this kind of long-held tradition is just being you know, eviscerated in the press all over the country and uh, if, if you practice this powwow you were you were you know a backwards bumpkin and very quickly it sort of became rooted out and, and went uh, underground. There's some modern practitioners who've kind of brought it back and, and some people, some families who always practice it. My wife's family actually, um, they had powwow doctors in, in her family. So there were a few you know, very traditional Pennsylvania German families that continued to practice it. But uh, for the most part, it, it really went underground after the, the so-called hex murder and hex trial in, in the 1920s. I always find that fascinating because most religions have a pagan influence of some kind or, or, or nicked ideas from paganism, especially Christianity. That's nicked quite a few ideas from pagans. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. And th this was very much practiced hand-in-hand -hand with uh, Christianity. This was kind of a, a local faith-healing tradition. It was not seen... The people who practiced powwow did not in any way think they were witches. Um, they thought they were doing faith healing. They thought they were doing, you know, God's work. Uh, so to them, it was in no way witchcraft. To someone looking in uh, from another tradition or from maybe a, a stricter or a different Christian tradition, they would say, well, that's that's witchcraft. You're, you're practicing magic. But in no way did the people doing powwow feel that they were you know, they they, didn't, they would have never have called themselves witches. In fact, they would have said that they use uh, they use powwow as protection against witchcraft. Have you got? Um, I presume you have native uh, Indian culture where you are as well. In uh, yeah, the, the problem is on the east coast. Um, it was largely eliminated. 
created before people thought to document a lot of it. So, for instance, the, the Susquehannock Indians, which were the, uh, the main tribe in this area, they were gone before anyone documented very much of uh, their culture, which is it's terribly sad because they had some very, very interesting aspects, um, including legends about local cryptid creatures and so forth, which I'd, I'd love to hear their stories of, but they just, they're gone. They, they, uh, it just wasn't uh, documented at the time. It wasn't considered important, sadly. I honestly believe they were the first conservationists. legend that you look at there's always an element of truth somewhere hidden in that myth say for instance take werewolves now we all know there's people that have a condition where they they have excessive hair that covers their faces and their all their arms and their legs now if you were back before people knew this and you saw someone walking through the woods upright you think my god that looks like a wolf have 
stuck in in our kind of folk memory and in our culture and so forth and they're transmitting some kind of information um often it's to do with uh, very strange things and uh, and how to approach them and, and and what not to do as well well you look at the old maps and obviously they had uh, the uh, sea monsters, which probably some of them could have been whales or uh, the mermaids could have been seals that they didn't see properly. Or, But as I say, it's like the flat earth conspiracy people. I had a good discussion the other day with one of these people. And I thought, yeah, I could... They were coming out with, oh, it could be this, 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 that, I thought... Well, hang on. If the world was flat, how could we go? How could we explain sea voyages and planes? Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't have any answers on that one. The, the, the flat Earth people are a, uh, a big question mark for me. Um, but uh, I mean, there's a huge contingent of them I know out there. And. Uh, it's like another. I think it. It's like people said to me before. You, you know, um, political correctness. People believe that's a form of the government controlling us in how we think about things. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I. I mean. I think it's probably a combination of, of social factors. I mean, you know, things are changing. Um, it's not the 1950s anymore, and you can't unring a bell. Um, so I, I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the way society is heading, and uh, it would be easier to think maybe it's some sort of government conspiracy than it is that, that just things are changing and, and they're not changing back. Um, but then again, may, maybe there's you know maybe there's something to it uh, as as far as social engineering as well. I'm a great believer in history repeats itself. If you look at most things in history, there's always something you think, oh, the First World War and the Second World War, they're connected in the way how the, the, the First World War influenced the Second World War because of the poverty that was created after the First World War. Countries like Germany, because they basically stripped them clean. They were left with virtually nothing. And they had to rebuild themselves. And that's why some people, people like Hitler who came along and said these wonderful rhetoric words of I'm going to make you fantastic, blah, blah, blah. And they put him in power. Don't get me wrong, I don't think Hitler was a nice person, by the way. <laughs> I, just, I just want to explain how he got into power. Now, you've got a president... Now, I'm not comparing you to Hitler, but the way he says his rhetoric is very, he's very influenced by how he can connect to people like way. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it's, can be very scary, the similarities uh, between that. There was, uh, I mean, Hitler really was able to congeal the, the sort of... Uh, a certain segment of the people behind him and uh, Trump has done likewise uh, there's people uh, who believe he can do no wrong uh, a, a lot of people who voted for him and who 
still believe that he is the greatest thing for this country and that, that he can do no wrong. And uh, I happen to disagree, but uh, I honestly, I'd probably feel the same way about Hillary. So I, <laughs> I might not be the best guy to comment on that. Um, I, I don't think uh, either Democrat or Republican would have uh, been the solution to the last election or probably any but uh, Trump is is uh, in my view he was the the worst of uh, the choices offered to us um I heard you say that you were into music what started you in your career as a musician oh I just uh, I love music from from a young age uh, my mother told me that when I was just a baby, I would sit in front of the, the stereo speaker. She'd play uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and she said, I'd just sit there like in a trance and rock back and forth as long as the music was on. I'd just sit there and stay. So music was always uh, very, very powerful to me. Ironically, I didn't really pick up an instrument until I was in my 20s, though. I wasn't uh, sort of a, a childhood uh, prodigy or anything on instruments. But um, I picked up uh, an acoustic guitar in my 20s, and, and I kind of taught myself a little bit, and then uh, became very interested in the banjo, and I wanted to learn a, a traditional kind of archaic style called Kohlhammer banjo. It's, uh, it has its roots in Northern Africa, really, but, uh, but it's kind of survived in, in Appalachia. And uh, I searched around, I found one guy in the area who, who played in that style, and I learned in a very sort of traditional folk way, kind of sitting at his knee, just watching him play and, and uh, until I got it, um, which I, I never got it as good as him, but, but I got it well enough to, to do what I wanted to do. Uh, so I, it, for me, it was very much the folk process in which I learned uh, folk music, and I... I always loved uh, folk music in one form or another. I, I, I became very interested in traditional folk music from both the UK and, and uh, Appalachia and uh, had a kind of very sort of traditional learning uh, curve in that. And that was my biggest influence. Uh, traditional music taught me how to write songs. So most of the songs I write are, are in the form of traditional songs. Um, there's a certain form most traditional songs take and, and uh, that's sort of uh, the form my songs take. I play a lot of traditional songs, uh, some in traditional ways, some in, in not so traditional ways, but uh, it was uh, it was just a, a very kind of personal love of mine and, and I, I pursued it until, uh, until I got it. And I was very lucky um, to have, be surrounded by some extremely talented musicians who, who helped me over the years. So um, when my bands started in the early 90s, I started my band, I very quickly uh, was able to meet some extremely talented musicians that, that kind of helped me and helped me along over the years. Have you got any stuff that, that people can listen to that you'd like to mention? Oh, sure. If you go to Bandcamp, um, the, the site is Stone Breath. That's my band. So just S-T-O-N-E-B-R-E-A-T-H, stonebreath.bandcamp.com. There's uh, several things up there. There's soul records I have, and there's uh, a lot from, uh, from my band Stone Breath, which started in 1995 and, and continues today. And that's all sort of acoustic folk music. Some of it's traditional. Like I said, some of it's originals. I think, I mean, as you say, basis of most music is 
got its roots somewhere, like blues has got its roots, and uh, rock and roll's got its roots. I mean, I used to listen to early punk when I was younger. I mean, but that that was supposed to come originally from the States and over to the UK. By the New York Dolls, wasn't it? I think that was... Yeah, sure. yeah I mean, uh, it's... Um... I guess it's like, like I said with the folktales, I really enjoy these connections where, where you can take a, you can find a song and you can find it in Scotland or, or England and uh, you can find its, its uh, descendant right here in Appalachia. You know, they're singing the same song. It'll be a little bit different, different format. The melody might have changed a little bit, but it's the same song. And I really enjoy those connections and just kind of seeing how things have changed. Uh, sometimes culturally things will change. It, it, you know, it might have been about uh, a traditional song about a lord or something in the UK and then it, it changes to you know a judge over here perhaps or or something similar um, but they're essentially the same songs telling the same stories and uh, there's a reason they survived and I, I'm also very interested in this sort of cross-cultural thing that the, the banjo particularly it's an African instrument my belief, a lot of people argue this, but I believe it came from North Africa because there's an instrument called the gimbri there, which is a, a stretched uh, skin lute um, that's like a banjo. It even has a short, uh, what I call, or what we call a drone string, uh, like the fifth string on a banjo. And they play it in a down-picking way, which is very unique to the Kohlhammer style banjo I was talking about. And uh, yeah, you don't really see that too many other places. So I, I believe that's the origin of the banjo right there. And uh, I, I just really love seeing these connections that, that you know, kind of cross culturally, and, and that have that have come over with uh, different waves of immigrants and so forth. So you have in Appalachia, you have uh, you know Scottish descendants playing African instruments, you know, and singing uh, English songs. It's it's uh, it's quite uh, an amazing melting pot, really. Shows you how much early man moved around. And the, oh, yeah. and intermixed with the locals, and then they. I mean, let's take English. English is an. Uh, um, we've nicked from the Vikings, the Normans, the Romans. Oh, that's that. That is all the influence of English. We've got Roman words. We've got French words. We've got definitely got Germanic words. I mean, I mean, I mean though, yeah, again, though we both speak English, most people say that the American English is a slightly different version of ours. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're separated by, uh, by an ocean, so uh, it's bound to be... Uh bound to be different the uh what surprises me though is i mean how close uh you know wales and ireland and scotland are to england you know right there and you have you have what you've got welsh you've got irish celtic scottish celtic and uh, and english and i'm probably missing a few that uh, that all exist there that's and that's pretty amazing as well. Well, of course, the road where I live, I live in Devon, which is in the United Kingdom, it's Cornwall. And in Cornwall, they've got their own indigenous language as well. Not well spoken by everybody, but it is, 
has been it has been even in the advert on the television for ice cream. There was a, a um, Cornish in that. In, in uh, across the well, across across from you, Canada, you got Quebec, which speaks Quebec and French. I love it. I like. I love the fact that although the world speaks languages, how they digress so much to, to develop their own form. I wonder if that was. I wonder if that was because when we was tribal, it was a good way of communicating, like in a secret code that you wouldn't understand. I see also you do do art. I can see your part of your art on your picture that you've got. Yes. And what kind of style do you do? I'm sorry? What kind of style of art do you do? Yeah, I, I try to draw cartoons. I do uh, black and white style as well. I, I just basically see an idea, think, oh, look, look, look something up, like an image I can look at and then guide me to draw. Um, I'm sort of published. I'm in a magazine called Gonzo Weekly, normally at the back page, but that's something to be proud of. Published. Um, there was nothing else like it, and from that time, I've 
I've done, um, I did one or two uh, professional comics jobs. Um, doing comic book art is, is really difficult. I have a lot of respect for uh, the fellows that can do do extended uh, uh, illustration jobs as a comic artist. It's it's for me anyway. It's very difficult. But I've done uh, book illustration and record covers and. Um, you know, of course, I've illustrated my own books and so forth. Uh, so I, I really, really still get a thrill out of uh, being published to this day. It's, it's, uh, there's, there's nothing else like it. Well, it's a way of recognising what you do, isn't it? That's appreciation of your art. Because art, yet again, is a subject that can be controversial. I mean, modern art is one of the perfect examples where you've got um, Damon Hurst. Was it the one he cut the cows in half and put them in formidadide I think is that right I, I'm I, I'm not familiar but uh, I, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure something like that's been done I don't understand it myself I will admit that it goes over my, I'm a great believer in I like the older stuff myself where you can see the drawing I don't even mind Picasso really you know the, the more cubic the um, cubic stuff you know when he I can actually see the when you look at it, you think, "Oh yes, I can see what you meant there." You know. Yeah, I mean, well, I went to art school, and, and uh, there was there was all kinds there from uh, from people who were you know extremely talented, far far more talented than I, to people who were you know they they called themselves conceptual artists. They uh, they you know couldn't couldn't draw very well, but. Uh, they, they had ideas and um, you know it's it, each has its taste for me I've, I, I think like you I, I tend to enjoy more representational art but uh, but I can appreciate other forms um, you know it's just different different strokes for different folks I suppose and also you say you're obviously an author yes yeah I've, I've Lancaster and Adams County and it's just looking at a lot of uh, strange phenomenon from mostly cryptids uh, a lot of Bigfoot but other cryptid creatures like Mothman and there's some uh, Goatman sightings or at least one in there and um, uh, things like that um, I'm trying to think what else oh, Alba Twitch we have a, a little a little creature so kind of a local uh, they call them the little Bigfoots or they're little hairy men yeah, I've heard. I, I read that. that. That was fascinating when I first read that. Over here, we got a thing called Owlman in uh, Cornwall. It's very oh, yes. similar, very similar to Mothman. Very similar kind of story. Yes, and I had, um, I'm a little bit familiar with the cases. I know. Did, was that the 1970s? I think. Yes, yes. I, it begins with an M, and I've forgotten his name, but I know it's in Cornwall. I would look it up, but that means I'd have to go into Google probably end up losing my recording so I don't want to do that <laughs> but it is available on Google people I think it's begins with M-A-W I think yes and, and several people saw it um, in the course of a very short time uh, people who weren't connected if I remember correctly it's a very very interesting case 
I think they were describing something that was very Al-like, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a person I know called Jonathan Downs, who's a well-known cryptozoologist over here, he's done a lot of research into stuff like that. Yeah, I, I might have read something he wrote on it. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to place. It's been a little while since I read it, but it, it's, I know it's a very, very interesting case. Yeah, again, there we are—a connection, as you were saying about earlier. As you say, with all the connections that we have, do you think we should all... Um, I believe we all went to that anyway, but there are certain subjects that people do won't talk about or they will stick religiously to it, like, you know, in the Bigfoot community. Some people will not talk to another lot in the Bigfoot community, although they're doing the same projects as such. that you do I, I'm, I mean I am slightly sceptical some things I will admit that but I, I listen in I'm, I'm not going to say to someone they're wrong who am I, I and I I'll, I'll, I don't mind I'll, I'll listen to any theory as I say I might not understand them and sometimes I tell people I, I say thank you for that but I didn't quite understand all of it it went a little bit over my head but thank you for giving me that knowledge because I think knowledge is the key, like you said. And then later on, like you said, we can look at it and say, oh, no, that wasn't real. But thank you. That was good. That was a good theory. But we've disproved that one now. Let's move on. Right, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, we, we have to kind of take 
information we can at this point and consider it all together um, and, and until we kind of figure figure things out better, which, you know, I have some questions. We, we may never figure it out, and, and that's very, very frustrating. There are people who've looked into this their entire life, and, and they don't want to hear that. They don't want to think that they've uh, wasted all this time and that, that they won't, in their lifetime, know the, the solution to the mystery. But I have to warn people, this mystery's been around for you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, the historical records show it. They talked about uh, Wadwo's creatures in, in medieval times in, in the UK. They, they called them other things across Europe. Um, the Yeti's been talked about for you know hundreds, if not thousands of years in Asia. Uh, the, the Native Americans talked about uh, Bigfoot-like things. They all had different names for them, but uh, long before we got here. We've not solved it in however many hundreds and, you know, like I said, probably thousands of years. We've not solved this yet. So it, I think it's a little naive to think we're going we're gonna to be able to solve it anytime soon. But uh, if I'm proven wrong, I will be happy. I'd love to know the solution. I'd love somebody to roll in a body one day and say, here it is. We, 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 had, we got one. It's just, a, it's just a creature. It's just a regular creature. That'd be a heck of a lot easier to talk about. Uh, as, you, as you've probably noticed when I have to say, well, it is and it isn't, you know, it might be this, it might be that. Um, and the reason I say that is because I don't know. And until we know, I, I, uh, I don't weigh in on, on one side too heavily or another. I keep, uh, keep my mind open. I try to anyway. Is there any way you can do it? Because that's the only way you learn things. I mean, as I said before, um, I like talking to people like yourself and other people that I talk about, talk to, I learn little bits and pieces as I go along. And it's like everything. When you hear, I, when I was in a geography lesson years and years ago, they passed a message on from one person to another person. And as, and as it went from one person and you got to the end, it was the same story, but it got slightly exaggerated each time. Only by a little bit, but that the true story had been still there, but the the exaggerations hid it. And that's what we've got oh, yes. to find and that's what we've got to find. Yeah, I think so. Um, but the, the hope is and I do collect a lot of a lot of historical accounts, um, from uh, mostly from old newspapers. Uh, they didn't call them Bigfoot back in, in the 1800s. They, they called them Wild Men. Uh, most often, they, a lot of local names for them, like uh, Gum Devil was a local one here, and out in uh, in Seattle, they were calling them um, Bosco. So they had a lot of these local names as well. But Wild Man is, is what they called them most commonly until until about 1900 when. The West learns of the, the mountain gorilla. Then they, they kind of have an idea of, of what to call them, uh, something upright and covered with hair. Then they start calling them gorillas. But in any case, uh, I collect these old reports, and uh, you know there there are certain things in them that are a little bit different from modern reports. For the most part, though, they sound very much like modern Sasquatch reports. And most inter- interesting to me is the behavior they're describing the same behavior in these creatures in the 1800s that witnesses describe today and uh, to my knowledge these witnesses aren't digging up these old reports they're not easy to find I spend a, a lot of time going through newspapers to, to try to find these reports yes that's a lot of that's the trouble when you do research through your books and that you have to look up a lot of archive 
I spend uh, from electronic uh, research. Uh, I'll spend you know hours upon hours till till I can't read anymore. Honestly, uh, my eyes will be bleary just looking through uh, newspaper microfilm or or electronic uh, searches for those newspapers that, that are online. And uh, it, it takes a long time, but uh, it's worth it to me. I, I really, really enjoyed these old stories, particularly because of the behavior. I think that's uh, to me that's. That's uh, that's the thing. That's that's the key. More so even than the descriptions of the creatures, which uh, again sometimes change slightly. And I think that's due to culture. Um, for instance, sometimes in the old reports they'll, they'll report that it was uh, all covered in hair and wearing a loincloth, which you never get in modern reports. But I think that's due to the Victorian age, where you know it was all covered in hair, but it was wearing a pair of pants or something, and and uh, you just don't get that in in modern reports. But uh, I, I think that's it's Victorian and Edwardian times. I think people were a little more uh, Puritan in their police. I think that they ended up, uh, for the sake of the newspaper articles, they ended up throwing clothes on on these things. But the, the behavior is exactly what these modern witnesses. Very peculiar behaviors. Um, uh, sometimes they recognize what firearms are. If someone has a gun, they'll recognize what it is. They know it's dangerous. Um, the way they react to dogs and dogs react to them, it's uh, very much the same across hundreds of years of reports. And then very strange things like you know coming up to people's windows and peeking in, uh, peeking from behind trees. Just this, uh, it's kind of a checklist of behavior, but it happens in these old reports from the 1800s as well as uh, modern reports we get today. Well, is that even going back to the paranormal, isn't it? Uh, during the Victorian days, they they would look in. They they accepted death more reverently, easier than we do now. Um, it was like more talked about. You had more seances. I mean, obviously there was a lot of fakery going around. Obviously, I'm not going to say there isn't, but um, it was more more talked about and more um more mediums more more easier to th- talk about it in cult- cultural terms yeah and i think it was it was more immediate and it was uh it was uh there weren't as many escapes either um you know from radio to tv to the internet and so forth uh they, they had to face, and of course the mortality rate was uh, was a lot higher as well. So it was, you know, just a, a sad reality that uh, <coughs> many mothers died in childbirth, many children died in their youth. Well, yeah, I, I, I honestly believe there is something that it, we do go when we go. I think that we, my theory is that we're our souls, or whatever it is, because... Um, move into like an energy I think that whatever God is isn't a being I think it's like an energy force and we join the energy force like a hive you know like we all join into one that's my theory I mean I could be talking absolute rubbish but but I I, I like to think that theory is right because I did hear someone say and I don't know how true this is that when they do um, post-mortems there's like a 20% of the body weight they cannot explain what, what's gone missing you know despite you know apart from the obvious of losing water and fluids and all that but there's a 20% they cannot explain 
a, like a 20 gram difference in the body. Is there anything you'd like to mention? I'm sorry, go ahead. That's all right. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Any books or any sites or anything you'd like to mention? People would like to go go and see what you do? Thank you for giving your, me your time. What I should do is send you the download, download link so you can listen back, and then I the the actual podcast bit as well. And as a extra, I always put this on my American version that I uh, app that I use called Anchor FM, which connects to a lot of other things, including Apple Podcast USA. Thank you very much, sir. And good night or good morning or whatever it is you're <laughs> Okay, good night. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.